Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the University of Massachusetts Medical School's Office of Communications. Welcome to the Voices of UMass Med. Like so much of the nation, Massachusetts has been hit hard by the opioid epidemic. The most recent reports by the CDC and here in Massachusetts show the number of overdose deaths did drop slightly last year, but alarmingly, it also found that a powerful synthetic opioid, fentanyl, was present in nine out of every 10 opioid-related deaths. Dr. Stephanie Carrero is on the front lines as an emergency room physician, medical toxicologist, and assistant professor of emergency medicine. In her research at UMass Medical School, Dr. Carrero focuses on figuring out how wearable technology could help patients in recovery. Dr. Carrero, nice to see you again. Same here, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. So start by setting the scene for us in you know, Massachusetts emergency rooms. What is it like for you as a physician being on that front line of the opioid crisis on a daily basis? So unfortunately, for the last several years, I've really gotten to see the effect of the opioid epidemic pretty much daily in the emergency department in my clinical practice. So we see certainly fatal and non-fatal opiate overdoses, but we also see multiple other complications related to opiate use, everything from infections, from injection use, to mental health issues that stem from uh, or go along with addiction. So having a first-hand view of this devastating disease and really kind of putting faces to the epidemic has been a motivating force behind a lot of the research that I do. Just a basic question for folks who might be a little uncertain of it, an overdose is not always deadly, as you said. Does it? Correct. What does it mean to overdose? Is it to lose consciousness? The term overdose is um, uh, somewhat casual, really. We talk about things in terms of drug toxicity, um, and every drug has a different toxic effect, so to speak. With opioids specifically, when we talk about opioid toxicity, we talk about respiratory depression and coma. Mm -hmm. um, essentially, people become very sleepy, which is not particularly deadly, but what can cause death or cause adverse effects is when their breathing slows down or even stops so that they're not getting any oxygen to their brain and other vital organs. And if that's not reversed in time, eventually they will die. How daunting is it for you to see the same people coming in repeatedly? I mean, substance use disorder is notoriously difficult. And so what, are you, how, how do, you, do you see people come in repeatedly? It certainly is frustrating. We do see people who will come in for multiple overdoses, and it's frustrating not just for us as healthcare providers, but for the patients and for their families. Um, when the patients are really um, at a point in their disease where they're not ready to engage in treatment or ready to kind of get on that path to recovery, um, but what is really important to remember is that even people who overdose multiple times can still get into treatment and can still have successful and sustained recovery at some point. So it's important to uh, kind of keep forward thinking um, and understand that it, it may just not be their time yet. Yeah, and does the, has the, has the um, widespread use of naloxone as a quick reversal, very dramatic from what I understand, mm -hmm. has that changed it? Because the use of naloxone allows people to survive and sometimes go right back out and and continue their abuse. So naloxone has been available to healthcare providers for decades, but the availability to the public is, is fairly new over the last couple of years, and it's had some really interesting effects on the way our community handles opiate overdoses. When naloxone was first introduced to the community, people were afraid that it would cause people to use more or to initiate use because they felt that it was safer. And that really hasn't panned out. So just from talking to 
uh, patients and talking to their families, um, we don't we don't see people uh, engaging in more risky behavior or feeling like opioid use is safer just because they have an naloxone. But what we do see, which is interesting, is people are less likely to come to the hospital after mm -hmm. an overdose if they're reversed with naloxone by a bystander. And I do feel like that's a missed opportunity to try to engage someone in treatment. Mm. But by and large, um, at least anecdotally in our population, we haven't seen an, an increase in risky use because of it. That's a great point. And, and you do have recovery coaches embedded in your emergency department. And so that can be a useful resource to help people on the path. Absolutely. We have a, a robust program in place where as soon as we identify someone who's had an overdose, we um, uh, collect all the resources available to try to get them in treatment if they're ready. So. Let's talk, that leads us to the, to the research that you're doing because of course, even once people who have substance abuse disorder commit to the idea of recovering and decide that they want to try to recover, it's still an incredibly challenging path. And so I think that's where your research really comes in. You've been looking um, at wearable wristband devices that can help opioid users. Can you tell us a little bit about it and what prompted that research? Absolutely, so our original research was looking at using wrist-mounted sensors, and when I say that, I mean devices that are somewhat similar to a Fitbit or an mm -hmm. Apple Watch that people use, uh, use in everyday life. So we were initially using these devices to detect drug use episodes, and so we asked study participants to wear them um, when they were out in their daily lives, you know, including uh, for these particular people they were using drugs. Um, and what we found is that the participants would wear the sensors when they use drugs. They would come back for study visits, and they would asked to see their data and they wanted to know what it looked like when they were using drugs, which was kind of interesting to us. But even more interesting than that, people would tell us about these incredibly stressful situations in their lives. For example, they were robbed at gunpoint or their children were taken away from them or they were assaulted by a spouse. And they would then ask to see what that data looked like because they said that those events made them crave drugs. And so it started to really cultivate this idea that not just is the drug use important to detect, but the episodes that lead up to it. And that's really um, changed the, the, the approach we've taken to the research. So now we try to use the sensors to detect, again, not just the drug use, but also the events that lead up to it. And so um, take us a little deeper. What is that sensor monitoring? If it's on somebody's wrist, what is it? on the lookout for? The sensor that I'm using uh, in the majority of our studies is the Empatica E4. And this is a sensor, again, similar to you know what you'd see at a Fitbit, maybe a little bit bulkier. Um, and it's continuously monitoring physiology at the surface of the skin. So it measures skin temperature, skin conductance or electrical activity at the surface of the skin. It measures motion and heart rate and heart rate variability. And it measures all these parameters up to 60 times a second continuously for days. Now the device can hold data um, on board, or, but it can also stream it via Bluetooth to a mobile app, and that's where the real like, potential for intervention can begin. 60 times per second, it's monitoring all the heart rate, temperature, all this. That must create a, a, mon a mountain of data for you. So how do you then go and make sense of it all? Luckily, we have fantastic computer scientists, engineers, and uh, very smart computers that can do uh, these things, but we use a process called machine learning uh, where uh, computer programs can take very large uh, data sets in the millions or hundreds of millions of data points over days to weeks um, and, and detect patterns that would be impossible for a human or the naked eye to detect.
You're listening to Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Can you give us an example maybe of, of what you are finding is typical among users in terms of what the data is showing their body is doing when they're craving? So we can see rapid escalation of heart rate and we can see rapid escalation of motion parameters, uh, but we're able to differentiate that from stress and craving by really subtle changes. So for example, in cocaine use, you, someone may have similar changes that you would see in stress with escalation of heart rate and escalation of movement. But because cocaine constricts blood vessels, their skin temperature goes down, whereas if they are stressed, we'd expect their skin temperature goes up. And also the degree of change that we see with drugs is so much higher than we would see with stress. And so, um, again, some of the changes can be uh, a little bit subtle, but the algorithms are, uh, are very good at detecting those. And we also rely on feedback from the participants. So in the earlier studies, we've asked participants to actually press a button on the sensor when they're experiencing stress or craving, and then we backtrack and look at the data and see what the changes are there. So is your goal with this work to be able to provide individuals with um, a deeper dive into their own physiology and cravings and perhaps abuse of drugs, or are you trying to really um, collate data from a large number of patients? And also, as part of that question, how many patients have been participating in this research so far? That's a great question. So the, the ultimate goal of all of these studies, and there are multiple studies that we're doing that are running in parallel, looking at drug use, looking at med medical use of opioids, looking at stress and craving, the goal for all of these studies is really to develop individualized interventions because we know that people use drugs for different reasons. We know that people have different predispositions toward addiction or misuse. And so the idea is, is really understand what's happening with that person in that moment mm -hmm. and delivering interventions that will help either prevent them from developing addiction or in the case of someone who's in recovery, help keep them in recovery um, in a way that's most meaningful to them. I wonder if you're able to talk about the responses and the reactions that you've heard um, firsthand from some of the patients and people who are involved in this research. Why are they motivated to do this and what is it that they tell you after they've been wearing these um, devices like the Empatica E4? So we've had um, the sensors on people who are patients who experience chronic pain. We've had them on patients who are actively using drugs and we've had them on patients who are in recovery and the response across the board is uniformly positive. Patients are very uh, excited about using them. There are occasionally participants who are indifferent and say I didn't notice mm -hmm. and they kind of go about their day but the majority of participants really um, enjoy the sensor they want to look at their data they want to understand how what they're feeling translates into the sensor but interestingly we also hear um, that patients feel the sensor makes them more mindful and feel mm -hmm. more accountable and the most interesting part of that is the sensor hasn't yet been connected to an app or an intervention this is really just participants who are wearing a sensor to, uh, to monitor their physiology. Just the act of having it on makes them feel um, like they're connected to someone in some way. It makes them feel accountable for what they do. And they also report that when we ask them to press the button to identify stress and craving that it's therapeutic in some way for them, mm -hmm. it makes them feel like they can 
take a minute to breathe and think about what's going on and really recenter. So, um, so feedback has been wonderfully positive, and, and we're um, we anticipate that connecting an app and an intervention will only make that better. Yeah, and I wonder if there's something to the um, stigma has been such a huge piece of the opioid epidemic, um, but but wearing a sensor that looks like a Fitbit or looks like an Apple Watch, I mean, it really, I would think, diminishes some of that stigma that they might otherwise feel because it's such an ordinary thing that anyone they see in the grocery store could be could be wearing the same thing. Absolutely, so when I started this research um, maybe six years ago, people would say uh, that bystanders thought it was maybe a law enforcement tracking device. Oh, but now that really has, has gone away with the, with the popularity of wearable fitness trackers. So um, people will say, particularly the young children are interested in it, they wanna press the button and see what it does. Um, but otherwise they're really kind of well integrated in people's lives. It's so I wanna talk about what's next for your research. Um, you have a project that recently started using a wrist sensor to study people who have never taken opioids before. Shed a little light on that for us. Absolutely. So despite all of the, uh, the bad press that opioids get and the, the certainly high risk for addiction, opioids are a really important component of acute pain treatment and medicine. Um, but even when they're indicated, it's really difficult, if not impossible, for physicians to um, differentiate who is at risk for developing addiction versus who can use these drugs safely. And so um, in our preliminary work, what we found is that when we put sensors on people and watch them use opioids, there is a physiologic difference that we can see in patients who are tolerant versus patients who are not tolerant to opioids. Mm. Um, and so we recently received a grant from the National Institute of Health to explore this further, specifically to use the wearable sensors to monitor people who are starting on opioids for the first time and monitor them for evidence that tolerance is developing. That's fascinating. So let's say, for instance, I had a sports injury or needed a knee replacement mm -hmm. surgery. Um, how long would I theoretically have to wear that to determine if I'm at risk for opioid? Um, dependence. That's what we're trying to find out. So okay. what we hypothesize is that certain people will develop tolerance much faster than others and we anticipate that that rate of development tolerance or that difference between people will translate to differences in risk for addiction. And so how I envision this maybe five or ten years from now is if you needed pain medication for a sports injury that we could put the sensor on you watch how your body's responding and then decide whether it was safe to continue or we would have to watch you closer or pick a different intervention if you were at risk. We are definitely gonna have to keep tabs on how that study goes. Are you recruiting people to participate in that study I am. at this time? Yes. Okay, and so is there a website we can give or how would people um, who are interested in learning more about that find, it, find out information? People can go to our website, umasstalks.com for more information about the studies that we're doing. This study is actually not recruiting from the public, it's recruiting from people who are in the hospital either having surgery or had an acute injury. Uh, but certainly people can read up more on it if they're interested. Okay, thanks very much. Stephanie, I'm curious before we wrap up, um, how did toxicology first grab a hold of your interest? Why is this the field that you've chosen? That's, that's really interesting. So um, from a, a, a science and medicine perspective, I was really interested in, um, in biochemistry and, and mechanisms of actions of, of different things. But from a... Um, very personal perspective, I think it's an opportunity to um, interact with a population that is 
often disenfranchised and uh, can suffer from these uh, incredibly difficult to treat diseases. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity for, uh, for research um, and for looking for ways to make people's lives better. Terrific, it's been great to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Dr. Stephanie Carrero is on the front lines as an emergency room physician, medical toxicologist, and assistant professor of emergency medicine here at UMass Medical School. If you or someone you love needs support, visit helplinema.org, or you can call the Massachusetts Substance Use Helpline at 800-327-5050. Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the Office of Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Visit our website at umassmed.edu news where you can find all of our podcasts. And follow us on Facebook at UMass Med, on LinkedIn at University of Massachusetts Medical School, and on Twitter at UMass Medical.